Well, welcome back to Dipshit Files, Scooper Troopers. I'm Mr. Scriptkeeper. And I'm Mrs. Scriptkeeper. And we've got a fucking doozy for you this week. Yeah. This is number 20 Mm -hmm. of the Dipshit Files, and we decided to go hard. Yeah. And it's Ted Bundy. And fuck (laughs) this guy. I didn't know much about Ted Bundy. Most of you probably know more than I do going into this. Uh, Monique told me just a touch about him. Yeah. And holy fuck. <laughs> the fact that people were were interested in him, like romantically, after learning about these things, yeah, it's blows crazy. my mind. Yeah, absolutely. Not healthy choices. <laughs> There's just no words for this shit. No, no, there isn't. So we're going to dig into a two-part dipshit file. Maybe even a three-part. Right. It we'll depends. See. It depends on how long this gets. If my ability to speak and pronunciate... Uh, gets tired, then we might have to cut this into into three parts. Into thrice. We'll right. But anyway, we'll probably do two, mm-hmm. maybe three. Mm-hmm. But this is the first one, and fuck you guys. Yeah. Let's open up this dipshit file. Ted Bundicles. So as the funny guy, the the waka waka guy, Mm -hmm. uh, these are always a challenge because it's like, well, fuck, you know, Mm -hmm. we don't want to make fun of any of the victims ever. Mm -hmm. That's just not part of what we do. And it's not part of my nature anyway. And all the virtue. But also it's like, you know, it's so graphic and gory. And from what you told me, just a little snippets about Mm -hmm. this guy. Mm -hmm. We'll see how many skitscats there are after this one. But (laughs) I'm very interested in this topic. Mm -hmm. Uh, This could be our challenger for albert fish there there's a potential for that and we're not going to be able to do the um the dipshit meter meter at the end of this one we're going to hold off until the entire story is told Mm -hmm. because there's some details in here that yeah i don't i I don't know we'll wait till we get there we're gonna wait until we get there i'm I'm not exactly sure um but i think it might surprise this guy's a huge dipshit ted bundicles if it, if it starts feeling too dark, because this is a pretty... You guys asked for a deep dive, and you fucking got a deep dive. Yeah, you did. Monique put a lot of effort into yeah, this Yeah, this, this has been almost a month long, so... Bundicles time. Here we go. Um, <laughs> in, the, in the event it gets too dark or too heavy... We'll break it up um, with some fun. Yeah, we'll do a couple of fun things. We'll figure it out. It'll be something like this. Hey, kids, welcome to the Friendly Friends, starring Smiley the Unicorn. Hi, I'm Smiley. And his pals, Hugsy the Bear. I'm Hugsy the Bear. And Buddy the Beaver. Oh, I'm Buddy. When things get scary or too depraved, we'll check in on how the Friendly Friends are doing. That sounds great. So that'll be stupid. Yeah. So palate cleansers are coming yep. in between here. But let's just dig right into this bullshit, shall we? Yes. All right. This is Ted Bundy. The Dipshit Files presents just a huge dipshit, Ted Bundicles. Ted Bundy. Ugh. Ugh. Ted Bundicles. <laughs> he was intelligent, articulate, and evidently handsome, although I disagree. Uh, a young man on the fast track to success. He looked like a young Cary Grant. Yet during a grisly killing spree that spanned five years, Ted Bundy slaughtered more than 36 women across several states in the 1970s. Although experts and people close to him speculate his actual number of victims was closer to 100. From his point of view, the thing that would make for good sex was an attractive woman who he's going to handcuff, terrorize, and make her believe that she's going to die. 
that that's what does it for him. Yeah, because that's not a good fetish. No. Not healthy. Police believe Bundy's killing spree had begun in 1974 when he was 28 years old. Studying law and living adjacent to the University of Washington in Seattle. Go Husky. He left a very positive impression on those around him. Hmm. He was, as I said, articulate, intelligent, and well put together. But at the time... No one could guess that this clean-cut, good-natured young man was about to begin a series of rapes, tortures, murders, and dismemberments that would shock the world. He seemed like such a nice boy. Ted Bundy, also known as Theodore Robert Bundy, was an American serial killer and rapist who was active across the U.S. during the mid to late 1970s. He confessed to carrying out 30 killings besides committing other crimes such as kidnappings, rapes, and... Mattress tag fraud. Necrophilia. Oh, that's way worse. Born to a single mother, he was raised by his grandparents and was known to be an introvert and very timid by behavior as a child. However, family members also recall instances where his actions seemed weird and disturbing. Okay. During his growing years, Ted Bundy preferred to remain isolated as he failed to understand interpersonal relations and had stated that he had no knowledge regarding developing and nurturing friendship. Hmm. Most of his victims considered him to be highly attractive, a trait he used to win their attention and trust. Like cunts do? Ted Bundy was born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24th, 1946 in Vermont. Way to go, Vermont, with your clean-ass water. His mother's name was Eleanor Louise Cowell, and she was a prim, modest department store clerk who had come to Vermont from her home in Philadelphia to give birth to her child out of wedlock. And his father's identity remains unknown. But forensic scientists speculate it was a dead raccoon. Ted was born at a home for unwed mothers. His mother was 23 at the time. The dead raccoon was seven. Then soon after his birth, Eleanor took Ted back to Philadelphia. It was the beginning of a tragic charade. Hmm. Ted was brought up by his maternal grandparents, Samuel and Eleanor, as their own child Uh. to avoid the social stigma of their daughter Louise being a young single parent. As he grew, Ted was told that his grandparents were his mother and father and that Eleanor was his older sister. Yikes. From an early age, Ted sensed he was living a lie and there were other problems at home. Eleanor's mother had a history of clinical depression. She suffered from panic attacks and was eventually treated with electroshock therapy. Mainly because the head kicks from a donkey therapy didn't work as good. Sorry. Her father, Samuel Cowell, was known to be extremely violent and frightening individual. Sam Cowell was reportedly a man with a maniacal temper who read pornography and who tossed his daughters down the stairs. Who read pornography? Uh, Dad, Dad, can we go outside and play? Oh, Timmy, don't bother your father while he's reading his pornography. Now it's okay, wife. What's pornography? Well, I'm oogling other women's bodies in front of your mother, making her feel very uncomfortable about herself. And about our marriage. Why, Dad? Well, son, my dick, that's why. And one day your dick will make you do stupid things as well. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Seriously, it's a problem. Well, this is fabulous reading here. Although Playboy had some good articles, I guess, but I don't know how you read pornography. That was stated several times in different news articles. I had to put that in there. Read pornography. It was in it was in the seventies, I guess, you know, it was a thing. Well, um, Robert Anton Wilson, one of my favorite authors, was an editor of Playboy during the seventies, mm, I believe. So okay. maybe sixties, well, seventies. Maybe Sam Cowell read some of his edited article. Okay. I don't know. Fucking bro. So Sam uh, apparently tossed his daughters down the stairs if they slept too late. He was he was quite what aggressive. What a sweetie. What a fucking nice man. As Ted grew into a young man, the confusion over his relationship with his mother would weigh heavily on him. Uh-oh. As early as the age of three, there were signs that he was not a well-adjusted child. His teenage aunt was taking a nap 
and she woke up to see that he had taken all the knives out of the kitchen drawer okay. and arranged them around her body with the blades pointing toward her. I'm not babysitting your kid anymore. I don't care if we have the same fucking parents. I'm pretty sure he's threatening to kill me. What else does pointing all the kitchen knives at my head symbolize? I'm hanging up now. You're deluded. Come get your fucking kid. <laughs> Something's wrong with Teddy. Yikes. His, his mother, concerned with this behavior and trying to escape the control of her father, moved with Ted to live near her Uncle Jack Cowell and his family in Tacoma, Washington. She was trying. In later years, Ted said that it was devastating for him to leave Sam, the man he thought of as his father. In Tacoma, Eleanor went by her maiden name, Louise, and worked as a secretary at the Council of Churches. One evening, she met a hospital cook named John Culpepper Bundy. Louise married him a year later in 1951, and her son finally had the name he would carry through life, Theodore Robert Bundy. Teddy Bundicles. But Ted was never close to John. Ted looked down on his stepfather because he thought his stepfather didn't have a high enough station in life. <laughs> Despite his new name, Ted still considered himself a cowl and was drawn to his great uncle Jack, who was a cultured music professor at the University of Puget Sound in Washington. UPS, baby. <laughs> Ted wanted to be just like him. It was very important for him to be special. Red flag. To be recognized and remembered in some way. Narcissistic yeah, shit. Well, here we go. Over the next 10 years, John and Louise added two brothers and two sisters to the Bundy family, but Ted had little to do with them or their father. Those kids lucked out. He belonged to a Boy Scout troop, but Ted never liked to go camping. Hey, Ted, we were all going to go down to the lake, and what the fuck are you doing? I'm dissecting this dog. We were going to night fish. Doesn't this dead dog carcass kind of make you horny? Gotta go. He just seemed to remove himself from any connection to his stepfather, and if there was no connection at home, there was even less connection at school. And yet he would make his stepdad's name infamous. His junior and high school friends described Ted as very shy. He suffered from a stutter and did not date at all. Okay. His only technical dates were Sadie Hawkins' dances where the girls asked him. Asking people out can be very scary. However, there was a secret side to Ted Bundy Theodore Bundicles. that was already beginning to emerge. Like a hemorrhoid on the asshole of humanity. He considered himself above the law. Red flag. By the time he was 15, he'd become an expert shoplifter Red flag. and was a suspect in two burglaries. Oh, wow. Also narcissistic shit. Grandiose narcissism. Red flag. The ability to outwit the police. Red flag. The ability to taunt authority. Red flag. The ability to shoplift. Red All red these things help confer on him a sort of narcissistic sense of specialness and entitlement. Hmm. What the are you, Ted, Ted Bundacles? Bundacles? Who's asking? Hello. Oh, you're aliens. Yes, Ted, of all your people, you are the most kick-ass. Yes, you're kick-ass, Ted. that's what I think. Come to our planet and be a star pilot and save our planet. He just be kick-ass. Let's leave now. During this time, his relationship with women also changed for the worse. He became a peeping Tom, sneaking through the night to peer into the windows of young girls. More significantly, there have always been suspicions that at the age of 15, Ted Bundy became a killer. Really? At the time, he was a newspaper delivery boy, and along his route, there was a young eight-year-old girl named Anne-Marie Bird. Ted knew Anne-Marie as she took piano lessons from his great-uncle Jack. On August 31st, 1961, Anne-Marie's parents found her missing from her bedroom. Mm. The window was open a little bit, and it was in the days when you had a TV cable on the roof, and it ran down under the window. Mm -hmm. So 
and it came through the window, so they couldn't lock her window. Mm. The front door was ajar, and she was gone. Sad. A search that at one time involved 800 soldiers, lawmen, and volunteers found nothing. Mm. At the time, no one suspected that Ted may have been responsible for Anne-Marie's death. However, in hindsight, many consider Anne-Marie as Ted's first victim, and there would be many, many more. Right, so let's check in with the Friendly Friends. Friendly Friends are Friendly Friends. On this episode of the Friendly Friends, Smiley the Unicorn's playing with the Switchblade. Hey, Smiley, what you doing? I'm playing with this really cool knife. You probably shouldn't do that, Smiley. Yeah. What are you talking about, buddy? Check out my knife. Oh, dear, you just stabbed buddy. Oh, fuck. You killed me. My parents are going to be so mad. We got to tell somebody. Fuck you, Hugsy the Bear. What? We tell no one. Yeah, but... Don't make me kill you, too. Oh, but Buddy the Beaver. Just help me bury him. <laughs> In the mid-1960s, Ted Bundy was a student at Woodrow Wilson High School in Tacoma, Washington. Even though he was smart, good-looking, and friendly, he was awkward with his fellow students, especially the girls. Hello, fellow students. The area in which he seemed to feel secure was in the classroom, where he could use his verbal skills, and that's where he tried to manage teachers' impressions of him. Like a kind. He graduated from high school in 1965 with a B average. Mm-hmm. The next year, he entered the University of Puget Sound, but on the huge campus, he felt anonymous and lost. Inside, Ted felt empty and inadequate, but he found he could put on the facade of a sophisticated, educated young man. What a nice, sophisticated, serial-killing young guy. In 1967, as part of this facade, Ted transferred to the University of Washington's Asian Studies program, Go Huskies. where he studied Chinese. Nice. He also began fabricating a new personality. Yeah. If the old Ted was shy and withdrawn, the new Ted would be witty cool and self-assured and his deception was about to pay off now he can be a special boy at the university ted met stephanie brooks he was particularly attracted to her beautiful shoulder-length hair which she wore parted in the middle she was wealthy sophisticated and worldly everything ted wished he was Uh it seemed to the degree he was capable he was actually in love with her he didn't want to murder her all the time they remained in a relationship for a year and for the first time ted experienced an intimate sexual relationship with a woman but he should have been eaten by his mother the day he was born sorry that wasn't helpful he was in love with her but to stephanie they were merely college sweethearts Mm. she saw no future in the relationship good instincts she actually thought ted was immature good instincts ted had become obsessed with her but stephanie told ted their romance was over Mm -mm. she told him that he wasn't going anywhere in life that he had no ambition he wasn't organized and he couldn't make life plans and stick to them that fractured his fragile little head noodle ted was obviously devastated. Head noodle fracture. With his world unraveling, he dropped out of school and decided to visit his relatives back in Philadelphia. Then he obsessed over vengeance like cunts do. His visit had a purpose, though. He had to answer the question that had always bothered him. Should his mother have eaten him? Yes, Ted. Who was he? A dipshit. After checking records in Philadelphia, he traveled to Burlington, Vermont. There, in City Hall, he learned something he'd always suspected. That he's a dipshit. He discovered that his mother was actually the woman who had been passing as his sister his entire life. Yeah, that's probably not fun to learn. That has got to rock the world of anybody. Big time. To find out that their roots are not what they thought. All right, Timmy, your mom and I, well, we'll get to that. We want to come clean with a few things. Okay. Well, first of all, Santa Claus is not real. What? It was the same handwriting as your mother. You should have known that. We were actually disappointed about that. Okay. We really were. So also, I'm your grandma and he's your grandpa. Wait, what? Yeah, your sister's your mom and your dad, we think, is a dead raccoon. There was a great deal of turmoil around his own self-identity and who he was. 
By all accounts, when he found out he was an illegitimate child, it was devastating. Sure. This man was badly betrayed by a woman, his mother, and learned of that betrayal at the very period when he was still reeling from the rejection by his girlfriend, his first love. Hey, welcome to Earth. It's rough out there. You should learn that pretty quick. Many who have studied Ted Bundy feel it was now that he decided to take revenge on the woman he felt had destroyed his life. Dipshit. With an icy resolve, he returned to the University of Washington, took a room nearby, and began studying psychology. He excelled in all of his classes and seemed rejuvenated with a new purpose and whatever demons raged inside of him, Ted Bundy kept them well hidden. Many people like him have an ability to create compartments in their lives. And this entity, this demon, this depraved monster lived in one of those compartments. However, as far as anyone knew, Ted's life seemed to be changing for the better. Wrong. In 1969, he met Elizabeth Kendall, uh, later would be Elizabeth Klopfer, a young divorcee. They began a friendship and then a romance. Elizabeth was a shy, insecure, and lonely single mom, divorced and struggling with alcoholism when she moved from Ogden, Utah to Seattle to try and change the course of her unhappy life. She desperately wanted to be loved and married and to have a father for her young daughter, Tina. She found a job as a secretary at the University of Washington Medical School. One night, her friend suggested she get a babysitter and come out for a few drinks at a local bar. It was something she never did, given she was scraping by financially. That night, she was trying to escape from a creepy guy at the bar when she saw Bundy sitting alone and she approached him. The irony. Thinking he looked sad, she said to him, You look like your best friend just died. The two began to talk. Conversation flowed naturally and the chemistry was instant. Bundy ended up spending a platonic night at her house, but they became a couple a short time later. This relationship would continue for six years and all through his killing spree. Sheesh. I bet she wished she would have gone with that creepy guy at the bar. His feelings towards her were strong but inconsistent. In February of 1970, after she told Bundy that she wanted to call him her husband rather than her boyfriend, they went to the courthouse, borrowed $5 from a friend, and got a marriage license. A few days later, before Elizabeth's parents arrived in Seattle for a visit, she asked him to move his stuff out of the apartment, fearing it could upset her very conservative parents. Ted no like you. This made Ted angry, and he told her that if she was so hung up on what her parents thought, then she's not ready to get married. Ted, serious. He tore up the license Lucky her. and left. Hmm. They were subsequently never married. However, Ted spent the years in their relationship caring for Elizabeth's daughter, Tina, as if she were his own. Oh, that must have been creepy. Where have you been, stepdaddy? Well, certainly not raping and killing. Will you read me a story? Let me wash the blood and brain matter off my hands first. Yay. Ted's relationship with Elizabeth was tumultuous and very unpredictable. He would often disappear for days at a time, only to come back as if nothing ever happened. It is obvious now that Ted was struggling with his darkness, and underneath, he was seething and plotting revenge. Like a cunt. Ted had an extremely negative core, full of envy and a need to destroy the beauty in others. And the first one on his list was Stephanie Brooke. Remember that, girlfriend? Move on, dude. He was still talking to Stephanie in secret, Mm. hoping to make her fall in love with him again, in order to hurt her just as she had scarred him. To enhance his image, he became active in local politics, working on the governor's re-election campaign. Fuckheads are attracted to power. In 1971, at the age of 25, 
Bundy was working in his spare time at the Seattle Crisis Center, manning the suicide hotline phone. Is this irony? Beside him worked the soon-to-be best-selling author, Anne Rule. Hmm. Anne knew Ted as kind. She remembered him as being very good on the phone, and ironically, they saved lives together. <laughs> well, how's that math work? My lord Satan. Now, what is it to say so? The human Ted Bundy wishes to speak with you. Oh, yeah, what is it, Ted? Well, I don't really think I should be here. Right, well, you killed a bunch of people. Yeah, but I saved people, too. Well, it's good to save people. You want lots of those in that column. But I got lots of those. Right, but you really want zero in the other column. What, the kill people column? Yeah. Well, I got a few of those. Right, so why don't you go back in the line you were just in and wait your turn for a Pineapple will be shoved up your asshole. No, fine. In 1972, Ted's first real girlfriend, Stephanie, still inhabited his thoughts and his plans. On a business trip to San Francisco, he met with her, and the new Ted Bundy swept her off her feet. She fell madly in love with him and agreed to marry him. However, as soon as she agreed to marry him, he dumped her. Dude. During this time, he was still dating Elizabeth Kendall, Klopfer, and she had no idea of his ongoing obsession with Stephanie or his actions in San Francisco. Two days later, on January 4th, 1974, Ted Bundy began a five-year rampage of killing that would horrify the entire nation. Most of his 35 victims had one thing in common. His ideal victim was a small-framed female, long hair parted in the middle, They all resembled Stephanie Brooks. Over the next six months, eight women disappeared from college campuses in Washington, Oregon, and Utah. During this time, it appeared he was looking for victims 24 hours a day. There were people that he specifically stalked, and then there were those that just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. time. His first two victims were students at the University of Washington. At the time, people believed that it was someone from outside the area that was doing these terrible things. They assumed there must be some depraved killer out there in the community who was coming to the campus. Little did they know that the killer was one of them. Even his girlfriend, Elizabeth, had no idea who Ted really was. However, things started to get strange in 1974 after news reports surfaced of murders and rapes of two women in the area. The name Ted was being mentioned by witnesses as well as a Volkswagen, like the one Bundy drove. Okay, park the ship box and come with me. Elizabeth was suspicious but reluctant to believe that Bundy was capable of murder. When she questioned him about some strange behaviors like when she found a meat cleaver on his desk. I use it in golf. A surgical glove in his coat pocket. Also golf. Or when he drove hundreds of miles to Colorado one night to de-stress from work. For golf. He used his intelligence and charm to talk his way out of it. A golf. Eventually, she would make the difficult decision to betray the man she loved and go to the police. However, they didn't think Bundy was the killer, and she stayed with him and never told him she had gone to the authorities. That must have been pretty awkward. Their relationship began to fizzle when Ted moved to Olympia for a job, and then Utah. They saw each other less and less, started dating other people, but always stayed in touch. When news reports of missing women surfaced in the new places that he lived, Elizabeth was increasingly convinced that he was involved and approached the police again in 1975. This time, the information she provided helped them charge Bundy with the murders, and we'll go over that shortly. These are the sad stories of Ted Bundacle's murders. Now, we're going to dive into his murders from here forward. Now, during this time, I'll be kind of going back and forth, trying to maintain a timeline It was very difficult to get this timeline down because it did kind of go back and forth 
so much was going on during this time. Right. There were a lot of females. So yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to try and keep it as clear as possible. Cool. Let's hear about this horrible person's crimes. Ted Bundy's first known murder attempts began after midnight on January 4th, 1974. Ted Bundy stood outside the basement window of Karen Sparks, also known as Joni Lenz, an 18-year-old student at the University of Washington. Go Huskies. He entered her bedroom through a door accessible from the outside, and while she slept, he savagely bludgeoned her with a metal bar he'd removed from her bed frame. Fuck. The next morning, Joni was found surrounded by a pool of blood. The bed rod had been torn away from her headboard and in a sexual frenzy, rammed into her vagina. What? Friendly friends are friendly friends. In this episode of the Friendly Friends, they're playing with a blender. Hey, buddy. What is a smiling? I dropped my favorite toy in this blender. Will you get it for me? You know it. Let me just reach in there real quick. Incredibly, she survived, albeit with life-changing injuries, including brain damage and irreparable damage to her internal organs. I bet. Jesus. There was a specific reason why Bundy singled out Joni. It was a physical characteristic she shared with almost all of his victims. She wore her hair long and parted in the middle. But it would take years before the police understood why that moved Bundy to murder. Right. Move on, Although Ted. Sparks uh, was Bundy's first confirmed victim, it is possible that he struck before this. Remember Anne-Marie Burr? Mm-hmm. It is unlikely that we'll ever find out who Ted Bundy's first victim was. The most probable scenario here is that his first victim was a woman who he attacked but did not seriously injure. Mm. Like many serial killers... Bundy evolved over time. During his teen years, he started off by prowling his neighborhood and rummaging through people's trash, looking for discarded detective magazines and pornography. He also roamed around looking for things to steal. From 1964 onwards, he graduated to voyeurism. In other words, he became a peeping Tom who likes to watch women through open windows. In 1968, Bundy's rape fantasies started to evolve again. By that stage, he'd been fantasizing about rape for about five to seven years. Mm. However, by 1968, he was beginning to fantasize about himself being the main actor in the crime. Get a blow-up doll. During the late 1960s, Bundy started to become violent. In one of his confessions, he admitted to crossing the line during this period. For example, he planned on carrying out a rape in a hotel in New York City in 1969. However, he didn't have a specific target in mind and nothing happened in the end. In one of his third-person, quote, confessions, Bundy spoke about an early attack in which he struck a woman from behind with a piece of wood and she, as she attempted to enter her car. However, he ran away after she fell to the ground and started screaming. Although we'll never know for sure whether or not this event actually took place, it is possible that his first attack was a similar half-baked attempt and that largely went unnoticed by the police and local media. It's also possible that his first victim never reported the crime. According to Bundy, his first kidnapping attempt took place in Ocean City in the spring of 1969. At the time, he was living at his aunt's house in Philadelphia and attending Temple University. During a day trip to the resort town of Ocean City, Bundy spotted a young woman walking by herself and decided to act on his violent fantasies. Although he approached this woman, talked to her, and attempted to abduct her, she was able to escape. Mm. Bundy stated that this failed 
kidnapping attempt made him realize that he did not have the ability to commit such a crime and get away with it. In other words, he didn't have the competence to do what he wanted to do. As a result, he decided not to make any similar attempts for what he called a long time. Bundy's final confessions in the days before his execution were far more honest than his earlier ones. We know this because he gave investigators a number of details that ultimately turned out to be true. As the day of his execution grew closer, Ted realized that coming clean was the only card he had left to play. By that stage, he had already exhausted all of his other options. Ted Bundy confessed to killing an unknown hitchhiker in Tumwater in 1973, and credit card receipts also support this confession. A multi-agency report by the FBI shows that Bundy was extremely active in the Tumwater and Olympia area between April and August of 1973. For example, he purchased gas in Tumwater at least 10 times during this period. If we take all of this into account, then it means that Ted Bundy's first victim was probably an unidentified hitchhiker who he happened across in Tumwater in May of 1973. Hmm. Okay, so... It's unclear. There is a lot of mess here. It's very unclear to get... It's difficult to get a clear timeline of his actions. It, it really is. Um, and I put that in there because there is a lot of debate whether or not he actually committed these crimes. Right. Uh, Ted was a liar, mm-hmm. but he mixed his lies with a lot of truths, so it was difficult to decipher. So nobody knows. Right. Well, it sounds, so, it sounds like he could have murdered a child way back. Mm-hmm. And then there's two or three other potential yep. first. Murders. Oh, there's more than that. There was five or six actually, hmm. but I didn't put them all in here because the evidence, uh, didn't support the crime. It was just, um, the MO matched Ted Bundy. Okay. So, all right. So we're moving on into his timeline of, of actual things that did take place just a few weeks after the brutal beating of karen sparks ted broke into the house of linda allen healy a senior at the university of washington majoring in psychology on january 31st 1974 after linda had gone to bed bundy broke into her room he knocked her unconscious wrapped her in bed sheets and quietly carried linda out of the house linda grew up in the middle class suburban neighborhood of newport in bellevue which lies five miles east of seattle a lovely place during her first couple of years at the university of washington linda lived in the residence halls on campus however in her final year she decided to move into a house at the northern end of the u district with her four friends. During her final year, the young college student lived in this shared house at 5517 12th Avenue Northeast, and this is the house that Ted Bundy abducted her from. On the night of her disappearance, Linda and her friends were drinking at a nearby bar called Dante's Tavern. Somewhat fitting. Although the group had had a couple of beers, they did not stay out too long. This was because Linda had to be up early for work the next morning, and another one of her friends needed to catch the bus before 10 p.m. As a result, they finished their drinks and left Dante's shortly after 9.30 p.m. Linda's presence at Dante's on the evening she went missing is significant. According to his long-term girlfriend, Liz Elizabeth Clover, Ted often frequented Dante's Tavern and another nearby bar called O'Banion's. Linda and her friends returned to their house on 12th Avenue at around 10 p.m. The quickest route 
back from Dante's was only two-tenths of a mile long, so it would have taken the group roughly five minutes to walk it. After settling in at home, Linda spoke to her boyfriend on the phone for about an hour. She also sat and talked to one of her roommates for a while. That evening, one of the women thought she saw a shadow lurking outside in the darkness. However, she quickly dismissed it as a figment of her own imagination. Wrong. It is possible she caught a glimpse of Bundy prowling around outside. Dipshit. If it was him, it was likely he was watching them, assessing the situation, and planning what to do when the light went out. After saying goodnight to her roommate, Linda Ann Healy walked down to her bedroom in the basement and got ready for bed. This was the last time anyone saw her alive. Hmm. Linda worked for a company that compiled local weather reports for ski resorts. Each morning, she would wake up at 5.30 in the morning and then cycle to the college radio station so she could read out the snow conditions for each resort. At 5.30 a.m., the radio on her alarm clock started playing, just like it normally did. However, this time, it didn't stop. When Linda's roommate realized that the radio was still playing, she didn't believe that anything was out of the ordinary. Her initial assumption was that Linda didn't have to work that morning and that she was still lying in bed and just listening to the radio. However, it wasn't long before a phone call from Linda's workplace shattered this assumption. That morning at 6.30 a.m., Linda's boss called the house to find out why one of his most dependable employees had failed to turn up for work. He knew that this unexplained absence was extremely out of character for the young college student. Feeling concerned, he implored her roommates to check to see if her bicycle was still in the house. And yes... The bicycle was still there. When her roommates investigated the bedroom, it seemed completely normal. There were no visible signs that anything sinister had occurred. Hmm. Despite this, something unusual did catch their eye. On the mornings when Linda had to wake up early for work, she never went through the effort of making her bed. However, on this particular morning, her bed was neatly made. In fact, it was pristine. Shortly afterwards, one of the housemates checked the side door that led to the basement and discovered that it was unlocked. This was unsettling, as one of the roommates clearly remembered she had locked it before going to bed. Although the four women knew that something was off, they initially rationalized her unexplained absence by speculating that she might have gone to school or traveled to Olympia to maybe see her boyfriend. However, as the day wore on, their anxiety about the situation steadily increased. After making a series of phone calls, they learned that no one had seen Linda. Consequently, when Linda's father and brother arrived at the house for a planned dinner, the housemates decided it was finally time to drop their wishful thinking and raise the alarm. When Linda's father, James, learned about the situation, he called his wife and told her that no one had seen their daughter since the night before. Because it was only 6 p.m., he suggested that maybe they wait a while to see if she turned up. However, Linda's mother, Joyce, was having none of it. Mm. As soon as the call ended, she immediately contacted the police. Although two patrolmen were quick to arrive at the house and take statements, they had no reason to believe that a violent crime had occurred. In their opinion, there was probably just another case of a, a college student running off to visit their boyfriend. That or she had hitchhiked somewhere and attended a party. However, later that night, a homicide detective arrived at the house to investigate. While he was inspecting Linda's room, he pulled back the blankets on her bed and noticed there were blood stains on the sheet and pillow. Moments later, he looked inside the closet and discovered the nightgown that Linda usually wore to bed. There were blood stains around the collar area. At first, there was a sense of confusion about her disappearance. Although Linda Ann Healy had clearly lost some blood, her bed was neat 
and her nightgown was hanging in the closet. Aside from the blood stains, there was no obvious signs that any violent crime had taken place. However, that night, Ted Bundy crept into the house while the women were sleeping and struck Linda Ann Healy over the head. Because her roommate in the adjoining basement room didn't hear anything, it's likely that this attack was quick and brutal. After rendering her unconscious, Bundy took some time to tidy up the crime scene. Linda's bag and clothes were also missing from her bedroom. It's likely that he did this in order to make it appear as though she had left the house on her own accord. Had the detective not arrived that night and pulled back the blanket on her bed, it might have taken days before someone eventually spotted that blood. After cleaning the scene, Bundy carried his unconscious victim out through the back door on the side of the house and then loaded her into his Volkswagen bug. He then drove to a secluded access road at the base of Taylor Mountain. It was at this Taylor Mountain site where Ted Bundy dumped the remains of Linda. Later, a search team would discover her lower jawbone in the area. It was likely that Bundy murdered Linda at this location and then dumped her body in the woods. That night, he would have parked his Volkswagen bug somewhere along the small access road that runs parallel to the power lines. Bundy chose this area because he was familiar with it. According to police reports, he hitchhiked and camped on Taylor Mountain on a number of occasions in the past. Because it was late at night and there was no lighting, he knew that there would be little chance of someone disturbing him. Although it is certainly possible that Bundy spotted Linda at Dante's Tavern and proceeded to stalk her, it's also just as likely that he randomly happened across her house late at night. Just terrible luck. During interviews, Bundy admitted that he regularly engaged in voyeurism, particularly when he was drunk. Fucking bundacles. Furthermore, Ted's girlfriend Liz, she noted that his behavior began to change in 1974. Instead of spending the night at her apartment, he would often choose to walk home. Like a cunt. Interestingly, Liz's apartment was just a 10-minute walk away from the roaming house mm. where Linda Ann Healy was living. Considering the short distance involved and Bundy's habit of drunkenly prowling around the streets late at night, it stands to reason that he might have spotted the lights and decided to investigate. It is likely that after seeing a potential target, he probed the exterior of the house for an access point. Once he had assessed the situation and came up with some sort of a plan, he probably left the scene on foot and returned later in his Volkswagen. Sadly, we'll probably never find out exactly what happened on that fateful night. We do know for sure that Ted Bundy abducted and then murdered a young woman who had her entire life ahead of her. Yeah. To those who would track him and those who would later try to understand his crimes, the question remained. What would the friendly friends do? Friendly friends are friendly friends. On this episode of the Friendly Friends, Smiley the Unicorn brings his pet Wolverine to show his buds. Hey, Hugsy. Oh, hey, Smiley. Hey, buddy. Hey, Smiley. Check out my new pet, Wolverine. Oh, yeah. This is a kind of moon. Oh, he's a happy pal. Yeah. Oh, shoot. I dropped my favorite toy in its mouth. Oh. Hey, buddy. Oh, Smiley. Let me reach into his mouth and get my toy. Sure thing, Smiley. I don't just go. That's a bad move for me. How could this charming and intelligent young man commit such unspeakable crimes against people he didn't even know? Right. Within six months, Eight more women in Washington had been killed by him. Jeez. At this time, Ted was working in Olympia as the assistant director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Commission. Jesus, fuck. He wrote pamphlets for women on rape prevention here. I mean, that's proof we're living in a simulation, isn't it? He also later worked at the Department of Emergency Services, which helped look for missing women. He probably thought he was so smart. This is where he met Carol Ann Boone and began secretly dating her as well as continuing his relationship with Elizabeth Clover. Hmm. 
Just six weeks later, on March 12, 1974, Ted Bundy abducted 19-year-old Donna Gail Manson from Evergreen State College in Olympia, Washington. On that murky Tuesday evening, Donna Manson was planning on attending a folk dancing class at the College Activities Building. She also had plans to attend a jazz concert at the library building on the Evergreen State College campus. This concert was due to begin at 8 p.m. in the main foyer. Before she left, Donna seemed overly focused on her appearance, though. So much so, in fact, that she decided to switch outfits several times. Her roommates thought this was a bit suspicious. However, Donna did not say anything to her roommates about meeting someone, nor did she say that she was going on a date. Donna left her dorm room shortly after 7 p.m. and set out for the college activities building, which was less than 200 yards away. Because no one recalls seeing her at the folk dancing class or the jazz recital, it is unlikely she ever made it that far. At 7 p.m., it was starting to become dark outside. It was also misty and raining at the time. At some point during her journey, it seems as though Ted Bundy Bundicles. managed to intercept the young college student and coaxed her into his car. One of Bundy's favorite ruses involved feigning an injury and intentionally dropping items in front of young women. If someone took the bait and offered him assistance, he would ask them if they could help him carry the item back to his vehicle. In many cases, Bundy strategically parked his Volkswagen Beetle in quiet areas away from potential witnesses. This gave him the time and the space to strike his unsuspecting victim over the head with a crowbar and abduct them. Yep. When Donna failed to return to her apartment that night, her roommates didn't believe that anything was amiss. Right. This is because Donna was a free spirit who hitchhiked on a number of occasions. Not recommended. It wasn't out of character for her to go missing for days at a time. As a result, it took six days for someone to report her missing. Hmm. It wasn't until March 22nd that newspapers started to report on the case. Following Donna's disappearance, search teams combed the 990-acre campus using tracking dogs. Volunteers searched the grounds on four separate occasions, each time up to 200 people took part. The surrounding brush-covered area around Evergreen State College was also probed for clues. Sadly, despite their best efforts, investigators were unable to find any trace of the missing teenager. Like many of Bundy's victims, Donna Gail Manson had seemingly vanished. Yikes. During the investigation, a campus security guard stated that he saw Donna walking back and forth along Overholse Place between 8 p.m. and 9.30 p.m., this road is south of Donna's dorm building. A police report notes that it did not have any streetlights on at the time. The security guard in question seemed pretty certain that it was Donna Manson. And this is because he had seen the young woman around the campus on a number of occasions. His statement that she was wearing a maxi coat also matches up with her roommate's description of her outfit. If this was Donna, then it drastically changes the timeline of events. Donna never attended the dance class or the recital at the library. Instead, it seems as though a security guard sparted her walking back and forth along a dark road that was roughly half a mile away. So the sighting in chronological order. One, the guard sees Donna walking south along this road at between 8 and 8.30. Okay. Half an hour later, he spotted her again. Okay. This time, she was walking north along the same road. Another 30 minutes goes by, and he sees her for a third and final time 
and this time she was heading south again. The fact that she was walking up and down this road raises a number of possibilities. Donna was either looking for someone and was unable to find them. Bear in mind that this was long before cell phones became a thing. Right. She may have been attempting to hitch a ride. However, she might not have bothered raising her thumb at a campus security vehicle or she lost something and was looking for it. Donna was Bundy's third confirmed victim. Although the police suspected foul play from the start, nobody knew at the time that a serial killer was preying on women in the Washington state area. In 1989 though, Ted Bundy finally confessed to abducting and killing Donna Mason. Although he told King County Detective Robert Keppel that he didn't remember much about the crime, he did describe it as nightmarish. Oh, boy. During his interview with Keppel, Bundy stated that he left Manson's body, quote, up in the mountains. Some of her remains were later found along with a few of his other victims. However, Bundy did specify that he buried Donna in a slightly different place than the other victims. Later on in the same interview, Bundy told Keppel that the search team would never find Manson's skull. Like a cunt. In his own words, it was, quote unquote, nowhere. (laughs) This is because he allegedly incinerated the skull in his girlfriend Liz's fireplace. Oh, wow. According to Bundy, he then vacuumed up the ashes. Ted, turn that off. Ted, Ted. What is it? What what the fuck were you just burning and now you're vacuuming? Just doing some spring cleaning. You're vacuuming something you recently burned. What did you just burn? Definitely not the skull of a person I just murdered. Right, this feels like the reddest of a series of very red flags. A month later, on April 17th, 1974, Susan Elaine Rancourt went missing from the Central Washington University campus in Ellensburg. Shortly before 8 p.m., Susan was washing her clothes in the communal laundry room of her dorm building. After switching on the washing machine, she left to attend a meeting at Munson Hall. The meeting in question was for undergraduates who had an interest in becoming resident assistants, a role which, among many other things, involves helping other students and ensuring their safety. My first RA just kept telling me, I can smell weed. No, fuck yeah, you could. At 10 p.m., the meeting finished and Susan left Munson Hall to return to the laundry room at her dorm. She also had plans to meet up with a friend afterwards and watch a movie. Because Susan didn't receive her clothes from the laundry room, it is clear that she never made it back to her dorm at Bardo Hall. According to investigators, the most plausible scenario is that Ted spotted Susan shortly after she left the meeting at Munson Hall. Judging by witness accounts, he was wearing a fake sling and trolling around the campus in search of a victim. After Bundy noticed Susan walking by herself, he wandered over in her direction. Then, once he was close enough, he pretended to struggle with a stack of books that he was carrying. In this particular case, it is likely that he dropped the books in front of her. When Susan saw this injured man struggling, she did what most people would do and asked him if he needed any help. Like a better than average person. Needless to say, Bundy immediately accepted her offer. After Susan agreed to help Bundy carry his books, the pair walked up the pathway to the western side of the library before turning right towards Chestnut Street. At that point, they crossed the road and headed north across the railway trestle where Bundy had parked his car. As Susan was leaning over and trying to place the books into the Volkswagen Beetle, Bundy seized on the opportunity and struck her over the head with a crowbar. Bundicles the coward. He then lifted her unconscious body into his car and drove away. When Susan Elaine Rancourt failed to return to her dorm that night, her friends and family were immediately worried. Unlike Donna Gail Manson, Susan was not the type of person who would take off without telling someone. She was not an adventurous free spirit who liked to hitchhike. Instead, she was rather safe and predictable. 
Not only did Susan fail to meet her friend that night, all of her clothes were still in the laundry room. Furthermore, none of her identification cards were missing from her dorm. At the time, the young college student was preparing for her midterm finals. And according to those who knew her, Susan was a studious young girl who never skipped class. In their mind, there was no way she would be willing to miss an important exam. Although the police were quick to retrace Susan's steps, interview multiple people, and put out an all-points bulletin, they were unable to find any trace of the missing woman. According to the Dean of Students, Robert Miller, campus security didn't have a shred of evidence about what happened to her. That same week, her parents, Dale and Vivian Rancourt, flew in from Anchorage, Alaska, to aid the search for their missing daughter. From the offset, they were adamant that someone had abducted Susan. That was sadly right. In the aftermath of Susan's disappearance, the campus police and officers from Kittitas County Sheriff's Department carried out an intensive search of the campus and the wider Ellensburg area. Explorer scouts from four different counties also took part. At the time, Susan's family flew a private airplane over the area in the hope that they might spot her distinctive yellow jacket from above. Unfortunately, there was no trace of the missing college student, nor were there any clues to suggest what might have happened to her. Subsequently, on May 3rd, the authorities decided to end the three-day operation. By May of 1974, both the authorities and the media were starting to notice a worrying trend. In the space of four months, Linda Ann Healy, Donna Manson, Susan Rancourt, and Roberta Parks had all gone missing from the Pacific Northwest area. The four victims were young college students between the ages of 8 and 21. Furthermore, all these women had disappeared from college campuses that were close to highways. On July 3, 1974, representatives from multiple law enforcement authorities in the Washington state area met to discuss the case. Although they had no proof that a crime had taken place. They still wanted to know what the Friendly Friends were up to. Friendly Friends are Friendly Friends. This time on the Friendly Friends, Smiley's playing with explosive materials. Uh, what do you have there, Smiley? I think it's nitroglycerin. Nitroglycerin? Yeah, you should drink some. Okay. No! Why, but he's got some, my piece. You want to drink some next? Yep. They found it worrying that so many young women were going missing. At that stage in the investigation, the only thing linking the disappearances together was the complete lack of evidence in each case. Ted Bundy's childhood friend, Terry Storwick, was living in Ellensburg at the time when Susan Rancourt went missing. According to Storwick, Ted paid him a brief visit at some point before May 2nd, 1974. In the days leading up to Susan Elaine Rancourt's disappearance, Bundy attempted to abduct two other women from the CWU campus. However, on both of those occasions, the students in question sensed that something was just off about the injured man. Perhaps they noticed he was a dipshit. Okay, so to follow, um, I compiled a bit of information regarding those attempted abductions, and this is... This is where we're at. So five days before Rancourt went missing, a man in a sling asked a woman on campus if she could help him carry his books to his car. According to the witness, the man seemed nice. However, once they reached his Volkswagen Beetle, she noticed that the passenger seat was missing. Yikes. At that stage, she started to feel uneasy about the situation. Consequently, she placed the books on top of the car and promptly left. An hour or two before Susan vanished, Bundy tried his injury ruse on another woman named 
Kathleen Delivio. According to Delivio, the man had a sling and was standing outside of the college library. Once again, he was dropping his books and pretending to struggle. Once they reached the car, the man dropped his keys and started to look for them. After fumbling around in the dark for a couple of seconds, he asked Kathleen if she could help him find them. However, by that stage, Kathleen was starting to feel suspicious about the encounter. According to Delivio, the man seemed weird and that sling that he was wearing just didn't look professional. Furthermore, he had just led her to one of the darkest spots on campus. Instead of bending down in front of this stranger, she attempted to put some space between the two of them by suggesting that they should both step back and look for the keys. Smart. Fortunately for Delivio, this worked. Once they stepped back, she spotted the keys and was able to pick them up off the ground while maintaining a safe distance. After that, she handed him his keys and left. Sadly, Susan was not as lucky. According to a newspaper article in the Spokesman Review, That's our town's paper. Another woman reported that a similar incident occurred on April 21st. That was four days before the abduction of Susan Elaine Rancourt. The woman said she ran when a man tried to force her into the car. This article was published on August 2nd, 1974. If this account is true, then it means that Bundy returned to the campus to hunt for another victim. Ten months after Susan went missing, forestry students discovered a skull on Taylor Mountain. This gruesome discovery led to a full-scale investigation of the entire area. The following day, King County Detective Robert Keppel was searching the site when he tripped over a branch and stumbled across a second skull. Okay. The skull in question had a large fracture. Exposure to sunlight had also bleached it, and according to Keppel, he knew almost immediately that it belonged to Susan. Hmm. Unlike the other victims, she had a lot of bridge work done on her teeth. Mm. Shortly afterwards, the police formally identified her skull using dental records. On Monday, May 6, 1974, college student Roberta Kathleen Parks from Oregon State University in Corvallis went missing. Roberta Kathleen Parks was a 20-year-old university student from Lafayette, California. She was five foot seven and 125 pounds with waist-long brown hair. Although she was majoring in religious studies at the time, she still wasn't sure what she wanted to do with her life. Roberta Parks was pretty unhappy at the time of her disappearance. Not only was she constantly butting heads with her parents, she was also having relationship problems with her boyfriend and worrying about her future career. According to police reports, her parents did not approve of her relationship. At the time she went missing, Roberta's boyfriend named Christy was working as a scuba diving instructor in Louisiana. In the months leading up to her disappearance, the couple were at odds with each other over the direction that their relationship was heading in. According to her friends, Christy was pushing for marriage. However, Roberta wasn't ready for such a huge commitment and was planning on breaking things off. On the day she vanished, things got even worse for the young university student. That day, she received news from her sister in California that her father, Charles, had suffered a heart attack. This plagued Roberta with guilt, as two days beforehand, she had argued with her father over the phone. Later that day, she received a second phone call from her sister, and this time, the news was much more positive. According to the doctors, it was likely that her father would survive. Although the second call undoubtedly raised Roberta's mood, it is likely that she still felt emotionally exhausted and off-kilter. The details about Roberta's abduction are scant and somewhat speculative. However, there are two things that we do know for sure. She was having an extremely emotional and stressful day on May 6th, 
and she was last spotted walking between her dorm room at Sackett Hall and the commons area of the Memorial Building. While she was en route to the Memorial Building, Roberta stopped to talk to her friend Lorraine. After the pair had a quick conversation about an upcoming Spanish test, Roberta told Lorraine that she was going to go get a hot fudge sundae. This is the last time that anyone reported seeing her alive. Mm. Later on that night, Lorraine noticed that Roberta had still not returned her dorm at Sackett Hall. She found this odd because Roberta was a pretty responsible student. Furthermore, everyone had to be back in their dorms by 2 a.m. unless they had a prior agreement with their resident advisor. Although Lorraine believed that Roberta's absence was strange, the possibility that something bad or sinister had happened to her was not at the forefront of her mind. Unfortunately, the following morning, things started to become much more serious when it emerged that Roberta had still not returned. Initially, her roommates were hesitant to report her disappearance in case it landed her in hot water. Mm. At the time, they believed she might be off-site and in need of some headspace. However, worry soon got the better of them. Although Seattle was 250 miles away, they were all well aware that young women were going missing in the nearby state of Washington. I bet. Consequently, they decided to contact their resident advisor and raise the alarm. Up until the gruesome discovery at Taylor Mountain the following year, the media typically avoided grouping Roberta in with the other missing girls. The other women were abducted from the Seattle area. Meanwhile, Parks had disappeared from a university that was 250 miles away. To many, the link between Roberta and the other victims was unconvincing because of the distance involved. There were also lingering questions about whether or not she had run away. According to King County Detective Robert Keppel, he initially found it difficult to believe that the killer they knew as Ted Bundicles. would venture so far outside of his hunting territory. Consequently, the discovery of Roberta's skull among the remains of Brenda Ball, Susan Rancourt, and Linda Healy came somewhat as a surprise to investigators. The young woman's skull was discovered in a forested area on Taylor Mountain. Up until that point, they believed that the killer was focusing his efforts on the Seattle area. However, it was now becoming clear that Ted Bundicles. was willing to travel outside of his comfort zone. Oh, goody. During his conversations with author Stephen Mashad in prison, Ted Bundy spoke about many of his crimes in third person. He did this in order to avoid incriminating himself. I think OJ did that shit. It also allowed him to speak about his crimes without directly admitting to them. For example, instead of saying, I hit her with a crowbar, Bundy would say something along the lines of, the killer may have hit her with a crowbar. Because Bundy put these pseudo-confessions forward as theories about what the killer might have done, we cannot say for certain whether or not they are accurate depictions of his crimes. Right. In example, he may have altered parts of the story in order to make himself seem more intelligent and cunning because, yes, Bundy was a liar. If you're going to be a murderous fuck, you might as well check off the other shitbag boxes. The main issue here is that Ted Bundy was an egotistical psychopath and a habitual liar who liked to convince others of his brilliance. Yeah. Therefore, we need to be extremely careful about taking anything he says as gospel. If we do take Bundy's third-person theories as fact, then it means that he saw Roberta sitting alone in the cafeteria and decided to sit down beside her. According to Bundy, she was lonely and depressed. After some casual conversation, he convinced Roberta to accompany him to Corvallis for some food and drinks. In Bundy's opinion, there were two possible reasons why she accepted his invitation. He was convincing enough, or 
She just wanted to take her mind off things. Once they were in the car, Bundy lied and said that he needed to collect his thesis from a nearby typist. At that stage, he drove out to a secluded area where he would attack her. There are two lingering doubts about Ted Bundy's story, though. One of Roberta's friends stated that she was very quick to reject advances from other men. Although she was going through relationship issues at the time, there was no indication that she would have willingly left campus with a stranger. Furthermore, when she met her friend Lorraine outside of the memorial building, it was nearly 11 p.m. and closing time was fast approaching. If this was the case, one has to wonder if there was enough time for Bundy to approach Roberta, strike up a conversation, and then coax her into leaving with him. Sadly, it seems as though Roberta's mental health problems may have clouded the investigation and led authorities to suspect that she had run away or committed suicide. You're going to see this as a running, recurring theme here. Okay. Initially, Chief Investigator for OSU Campus Security Bill Harris believed that the missing woman may have left for California. However, the week soon passed by and there was still no sign of the college freshman. According to health professionals, Roberta had a lot of issues at the time. Psychiatric social worker Georgine Thompson said that the 20-year-old was unpredictable and hesitant to engage in therapy. She also stated her belief that Kathy was capable of running off and that she may have been having suicidal tendencies. Dr. Peter Winters told investigators that Parks was angry, nervous, emotional, depressed, and at risk of suicide. Other doctors who treated Roberta also echoed similar sentiments. One even recalled how she talked about getting away at one point. All in all, it seems as though the young college student was in a pretty dark place. But the family did not tell Charles about her disappearance until a week later. If Bundy was telling the truth about the murder of Roberta Parks, then it means that he callously attacked and murdered a vulnerable young woman who had confided her problems in him just moments beforehand. Then he drove for five hours and dumped her body on the side of a remote mountain hundreds of miles away from her family. It sounds like something Bundacles the cunt would do. So another month passes, and in the early hours of June 1st, 1974, 22-year-old Brenda Carol Ball disappears from Burien, Washington. On the evening of May 31st, she was drinking at the Flame Tavern in Burien. Brenda was a regular at that bar. Because of this, she knew many of the patrons and staff members. That night, the tavern had offered live music, and as the night was coming to an end, Brenda asked a band member who she knew if he'd give her a ride home. However, he said no because he was going in a different direction. There are two conflicting reports about how Brenda left the bar that night. One report states that she left by herself and was planning on thumbing a lift or hitchhiking. Again, not recommended. Another claims that she left with an unidentified man, although we will probably never find out exactly how she left the Flame Tavern, we do know one thing for certain. At some point in the early hours of June 1st, 1974, Brenda Carol Ball fell into the clutches of Ted Bundy. When Brenda failed to return to her apartment in Normandy Park, there weren't any immediate concerns about her safety. According to her roommates, she was an adventurous person who sometimes disappeared for days at a time. Hmm. Furthermore, in the summer of 1974, it had just arrived and the 22-year-old was now free of the responsibility of college. And as a result, she was starting to party a lot. As one does. As the days slowly Been turned... there. <laughs> That's all I did in college. As the days slowly turned into weeks, a sense of worry started to creep in. Yeah. Although Brenda did have a habit of going on trips and staying with different people, 
This excursion of hers was beginning to stretch on for much longer than usual. Not only had Brenda failed to make any contact, all her clothes were still in the apartment. In an attempt to ease their concerns, her roommates decided to contact her bank and ask if there had been any money withdrawn. Uh, When they learned that there was no recent activity on her account, alarm bells started to ring. At that stage, they made contact with Brenda's parents in Kent. Unfortunately, they hadn't seen or heard from their daughter either. What a nightmare. It's now becoming clear to everyone that something is terribly wrong. Consequently, two weeks later on June 17th, her mother, Rosemary, decided to contact the police and file a missing persons report. And the first thing the police did was find out what the Friendly Friends were doing. Friendly Friends are Friendly Friends. On this episode of the Friendly Friends, they're just playing with fire. Hey, buddy, check this out. Hey, what are you spraying, Mara? Hey, don't do that. No, it's cool, Bear. No, don't throw that match. Too late. Oh, roses. When Brenda Carroll Ball first disappeared, the police did not believe that her case was related to the other missing girls. Hmm. Donna Healy, Donna Grail Manson, Susan Rancourt, and Roberta Kathleen Parks were all abducted from college campuses. Brenda, on the other hand, was slightly older and had vanished after spending the night at a dive bar. To add to all of this, Ball had a history of leaving for days at a time. According to King County Detective Robert Keppel, he's another recurring person, Mm -hmm. uh, there just didn't seem to be anything in common. Because of this, the authorities didn't make her case public until August 7th. Sadly, it seems as though she was largely forgotten about until two students happened across her skull on Uh, Taylor Mountain. In an ironic twist of fate, it was Brenda's skull that led investigators to the remains of some of the other missing girls. Hmm. Following the discovery, search teams combed the site and located Linda Ann Healy, Susan Elaine Rancourt, and Roberta Parks. One report claims that a staff member of the Flame Tavern saw Brenda speaking to a good-looking man who was wearing a sling on his arm. However, there are a few question marks hanging over this story. Firstly, it seems as though this statement was made at a later date. If a staff member had reported this sling story at the beginning of the investigation, then it's likely that detectives would have immediately made the connection between Brenda's disappearance and the other missing girls. By August of 1974, the police were well aware that the man they were looking for was using a fake injury ruse. Therefore, it stands to reason that any report of Brenda speaking to a handsome man in a sling would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Secondly, no one else at the bar reported such a sighting. Hmm. And according to his girlfriend, Liz Clover, Ted was in a hurry on the evening of May 31st. He was doing bundle shit. The following is a transcript of one of her interviews. And now this is a quote. It was a Saturday night and my parents came out from Utah. The tradition in the Mormon faith is that when you're eight years old, you get baptized. And you get your magic underwear when you turn 30. I'm sorry. And so I was going to have my daughter Molly baptized, and my father was going to do the baptism. We went out to dinner the night before, and Ted treated us all to pizza. Oh, bundacles. He was in a big hurry to go after we were done with the pizza. The next day, he didn't even show up. He completely missed the baptism. And after it was all done, he showed up at the church. I forget what he said was the excuse, car trouble or something like that. What bundacles do what the bundacles do. I was mad because he was making me look bad in front of my parents. But, you know, never in our wildest dreams did he th- we think he was out abducting people. End quote. It was likely that Ted was eager to leave because he was planning on going out and hunting 
for another victim. Furthermore, the fact that he was late the next day suggested that he was preoccupied with the disposal of Brenda Ball's body. That or he needed to revisit the remains and confirm that he hadn't left any physical evidence behind. Bundy was usually drunk during his crimes, and as a result, he often felt the need to revisit the scene and reassure himself that he hadn't made any mistakes. Which is probably a mistake. Yeah. (laughs) Oh, bundacles. Right. Because Liz's mother kept a diary, there is a record of what happened on May 31st. That evening... Ted treated them all to food at a restaurant called Pizza and Pipes. Smoking a crepe. However, the dinner only lasted about an hour and a half. Afterwards, Ted dropped them all off at Liz's house and said he was going home. I'm getting him. During one of his prison interviews with offer Stephen Michaud, Bundy speculated on what might have happened to Brenda Carroll Ball. Wink, wink. This is one of his... Uh, Winkity wink from a bundacle. One of his third-person narratives, right? So right? According to Bundy, the killer may have intentionally changed his M.O. by picking up a hitchhiker. At the time, the abductions of young women from college campuses were beginning to receive a lot of police and media attention. In the killer's mind, targeting a woman in a different setting might allow him to fly under the radar. At some point, it seems as though he happened to come across Brenda who was looking for a ride home. After picking Brenda up, Ted remained friendly and made small talk with her. When he learned that the young woman didn't have any plans for the night, he asked her if she wanted to go to a party back at his place. Oh, don't do it, Brenda, fuck. According to Bundy, she accepted this invitation. Oh, Brenda. As they were driving back to his house, the killer continued to chat with Brenda. Creepy and weird. During this journey, he had two goals. To remain focused and to keep her at ease. And not bundacle his bundaclerians all over his Bundy mobile. Yeah, sorry. In other words, he didn't want his victim to have any second thoughts. Right. Nor did he want to lose control of himself or become nervous by thinking about what he was planning on doing. Oof. Once they reached the house, he made up an excuse as to why there wasn't a party. I'm a huge loser. Although Ball did express some hesitancy about the situation at first, it seems as though she was drunk and bored enough to go in the house and drink with the killer. Creepy and weird. Bundy claims that the pair continued drinking together until she was exceptionally intoxicated. At that stage, they had a consensual sexual encounter. However, this alone was not enough for the killer. Hmm. According to Bundy, consensual sex did not completely fulfill his desires. Subsequently, he decided to strangle the 22-year-old while she was sleeping. What the fuck, Bundacles? If this story was a true account of what really happened, then it means that Bundy brought Brenda Carroll Ball back to his roaming house in Seattle. Between 1969 and 1974, Bundy lived in the Rogers Rooming House at 4143 12th Avenue in Seattle. According to his confession, he brought Brenda back to this residence in the early hours of June 1st, 1974. This would have been a very risky move on his part as there were other tenants living in the building. Judging by his actions in other cases, Bundy was an impulsive creature who almost immediately attacked his victims as soon as he had a chance. Hmm. Therefore, this story about him remaining calm and driving 15 miles back to a place where other people knew him is pretty difficult to believe. From Bundy's standpoint, it would have been much easier to drive to a remote location and attack her. There were no benefits to bringing Brenda back to his room, only risks. During the interview, Stephen Mashad was quick to point out that it seemed terribly risky for the killer to bring the victim back to his house. In reality, 
Bundy did not have his own house. Instead, he was renting a room in a house with other people. In other words, this wasn't as risk-free as his confession had suggested. If his victim had screamed or made noise while he was attempting to strangle her, then Bundy would have found himself in a very exposed position. When two forestry students discovered Brenda Ball's skull in 1975, a large portion of the right side was missing. This suggested that she received an extremely heavy blow to the side of her head. According to the medical examiner, such a fracture was not the work of wild animals. Well, it's hard to call Ted a civilized animal. If Bundy was telling the truth about strangling Brenda to death, then it is difficult to see why he would have needed to inflict such a blunt force injury. Former UW student Phyllis Armstrong stated that a man in crutches asked her to carry a gas can to his Volkswagen Bug on May 31st, 1974. Once they reached the car, he asked her to get inside and help him start it by pushing a button underneath the steering wheel. However, by that stage, Phyllis started feeling like something was off about the situation. Consequently, she apologized and quickly left. This encounter took place at 11 p.m., roughly three hours before Brenda Ball went missing. If the man in question was Ted Bundy, then it means that his statement about the killer Purposely changing his M.O. in order to avoid attention was a lie. Again, he is a cunt, and that is what cunts do. In other words, Bundy didn't change his M.O. as part of some cunning strategy to avoid detection. In reality, he changed his M.O. because in his initial plan to abduct another college student had failed. Bundy calls the loser. On the night of June 10th, 1974... George Ann Hawkins had gone to a party on campus with a friend where they did drink, but they did not stay long. George Ann left the party early because she needed to study for an upcoming Spanish final. On the way out of the party, she parted ways with her friends, saying she wanted to go visit her boyfriend to say goodnight. Though George Ann was apparently a cautious and careful person, she felt safe walking on campus. You should feel safe on campus. It was brightly lit, and there were almost always people around. Plus, George Ann's boyfriend was a member of Beta Theta Pi, a fraternity whose house was not far from Kappa Alpha Theta House. She made it to see her boyfriend at around 12.30, and she hung around with him for about a half an hour before leaving to head back to her own room for the night. The last person to have seen George Ann was a Beta Theta Pi fraternity brother named Dwayne. He heard the back door of the frat house shut, so he stuck his head out to investigate. When he saw George Ann, he called out to her. They chatted for a few minutes before Georgianne continued her walk home. No definitive sign of Georgianne Hawkins has ever been seen again. Mm. Georgianne was last seen wearing a red, white, and blue sheer floral blouse over a white shirt. She was also wearing blue cotton bell-bottom pants with three buttons missing and white wedge sandals. Her purse was a tan satchel with red stains on it and had her ID, cash, a hairbrush, and perfume inside at the time of her disappearance. Georgianne was also wearing two rings when she was last seen. The first was a yellow gold ring with a rectangle onyx stone, and the second ring was also yellow gold with a pearl. Right, well, friendly friends. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. This time on Friendly Friends, we just gave them fucking axes. Hey, buddy, check out my axe. Friendly friends are friendly as fuck. Police began investigating Georgianne's disappearance very quickly. They were at the sorority by 7.45 p.m. on June 11th. This is due to the fact that there had been a string of missing women in the area that aligned with Georgianne's physical attributes. Law enforcement knew the cases were linked, and they knew they had no time to waste when it came to attempting to find Georgianne. 
Officers conducted a search on the path that Georgianne would have taken that night, crawling on their hands and knees, searching for any evidence or clues of what would have happened. A search of Georgianne's room at the sorority house showed that the only items missing were what she was wearing and the few personal items she carried in her purse. Her roommate claimed Georgianne would never have left for so long without leaving a way to contact her. This, along with the fact that Georgianne required either glasses or contacts to see properly and had neither, convinced investigators that Georgianne was taken against her will. It was the fact that Georgianne was nearsighted that bore the first theories. They believed that Georgianne would not have seen someone following her or hiding nearby as she walked to or from the fraternity house. They theorized that she was likely incapacitated by a blow to the head or chloroform, and that's why no one heard any cries for help. Unfortunately, none of these theories were substantiated during the initial investigation. No tips brought on new leads. Investigations went nowhere. And Georgianne's case grew cold as more and more women in the Pacific Northwest went missing and remains were found. On September 6, 1974, the skeletal remains of two women that were abducted together were discovered, along with the partial remains of a third skeleton. Some investigators believe the partial remains belonged to Georgianne, but they were never definitively identified. The partial remains are said to have been cremated, so DNA testing is not an option. Uh, waka waka. Sorry, I hadn't said anything for a minute. The Bundy connection in this case is straightforward and clear-cut. Bundy confessed in mm-hmm. disturbing detail to the abduction and murder of George Ann Hawkins. According to Bundy, he used his favorite tactic of feigning an injury and asking for assistance when approaching George Ann. He claimed he approached her on crutches and asked her to help him carry his briefcase to his car. Georgianne, being the kind and helpful person we know her to be, agreed. Shit. When they reached the car, Georgianne knelt in the car to place the briefcase where Bundy told her to, and while she was in the, this vulnerable position, he hit her over the head with a crowbar, rendering her unconscious. This is his pattern. Bundy then put her fully in the car and left the UW campus. Here's where the really gruesome details start to come into place. Bundy claimed that Georgianne regained consciousness while driving and she was incoherent, babbling about tutoring and a Spanish exam. Rather than to try and to manipulate or calm her, Bundy struck her with a crowbar again, Fuck. rendering her unconscious again. Bundy drove to a secluded location, which was thought to be somewhere near Lake Sammamish, a favorite locale of his. He removed the still unconscious George Ann from the car and strangled her with a length of rope. He left her there for three days before returning to decapitate her head, Shit. which he claimed to have buried on a hillside. Fuck you, Bundacles. Bundy also claimed that he returned to the abduction site to clean up any clues he had left behind. George Ann's shoes and hoop earrings specifically. He also smugly noted that as he visited the scene of the abduction, the police were searching a different part of the campus. It's important to keep in mind, this is all in Bundy's own words. We have no true corroborating evidence. Well, at least we have the friendly friends. Friendly friends are friendly, your face. In this episode of the friendly friends, the bear just mauls the other two. Friendly friends are mauling their friends. After Bundy's confession, Keppel and law enforcement officers in Washington searched the area near Lake Sammamish, at which Bundy claimed to have disposed of George Ann's remains, and they found nothing. Bundy also apparently made claims that parts of George Ann's remains were found with other victims, but remained unidentified. 
This has led some investigators to believe that George Ann may have been partially cremated, leaving more gaping holes in the idea that there may someday be closures in this case. Mm. On July 14th, just over a month later, 1974, serial killer Ted Bundy abducted Janice Ann Ott and Denise Marie Nasland from Lake Sammamish State Park in Washington in broad daylight. Fuck. Uh, that Sunday, the sun was shining and temperatures had continued to rise. Throughout the afternoon, thousands of people flocked to the beach at Lake Sammamish State Park, eager to make the most out of the weather. Sadly, it wasn't long before Bundy turned this beautiful summer day into something out of a nightmare. That's what bundicles do. Janice Ott was a 23-year-old juvenile court worker who lived in Issaquah. At the time of her disappearance, her husband Jim was studying in California. According to police files, the couple had recently separated. However, they were still in regular contact with one another. Because there was no one around and she had nothing else to do that day, Janice decided to head to the beach by herself. After leaving a note for her roommate saying she'd be back by 4.30 p.m., the young woman grabbed her yellow bicycle and set off for Lake Sammamish. And yes, they have Sam Squanches there. Once she reached the park, she found a spot on the beach where she could put a towel down and relax. She then undressed into her bikini and put on some cocoa butter. Okay. That afternoon, Ted Bundy parked his Volkswagen Bug in the middle of the parking lot. Like a cunt. 20 minutes later, Ted Bundy spotted Janice relaxing on the beach and decided to approach her. Moments before, though, he had attempted to lure another woman named Janice Graham away from the park. After introducing himself to Graham and claiming that his arm was injured, he asked her if she could help him unload a sailboat. Weird flex. Thinking that the boat was in the parking lot, she agreed and proceeded to follow him. However, Graham refused when she realized that he wanted her to get into his Volkswagen. At that stage, Bundy said, that's okay, and admitted he should have been more forthright about where the boat was. Well, <laughs> Following this failed attempt, he wasted little time in targeting another woman. As Ted was walking back towards the beach, he veered off to the right and started walking towards Janice Ott. After approaching the 23-year-old, Ted employed the same ruse. He explained that his arm was injured from playing racquetball and that he needed someone to help him unload a catamaran boat. Yeah, excuse me, stranger. Yeah, yeah what's up? I need someone to help me unload this big boat. Yeah, go fuck yourself. It's also not even here. Eat shit. Yeah, but I'm hurt. What the fuck is wrong with you? A lot of things. However, this time, he modified his story and claimed that the boat was at his parents' house in Issaquah. Go fuck yourself, bundicles. From his perspective, he probably wanted to avoid another situation where his victim suddenly backed out. Although... Ott was friendly towards Ted, she did display signs that she didn't really want to leave the beach. According to onlookers, he was pretty insistent. He's a C-word. Judging by witness accounts, the following conversation took place after Ted introduced himself and explained that he needed help. Note that parts of this conversation are probably missing as it's based on the recollections of people who were sitting within earshot. Janice, sit down and we can talk about it. Ted, well, it's up at my parents' house in Issaquah. Janice. Oh, really? Well, I live in Issaquah. Well, okay. I don't know how to sail, though. Ted, it'll be easy for me to teach you. Janice. Is there room for my bicycle in the car? Ted. Yep, it'll fit in the trunk. At this stage, Janice started to put her clothes back on. And then individuals heard this. Janice. Okay, I'll go under one condition. I get a ride in the sailboat. Ted laughs. Of course. My car is over there in the parking lot. Janice, I guess I'll get to meet your parents then. As the pair were walking away together, Bundy asked Ott if she knew anyone in Issaquah. 
This was the last time anyone ever saw her alive. Now, Denise Marie Nasland was a 19-year-old student who was studying software development at night school. During the day, she worked part-time as an office worker. At the time of her death, Nasland was dating a man named Ken Little. Around 1 p.m., Denise and her boyfriend arrived at Lake Sammamish with another couple, Bob Sargent and Nancy Bedma. The group decided to sit in a spot on the eastern side of the park, roughly 200 feet north of the restrooms. According to Nancy, Denise took four Valium tablets when they arrived. Shortly after 4 p.m., Ken and Bob fell asleep after the group had eaten hot dogs and potato chips. At that stage, Denise told Nancy she was feeling high. Hmm. After a short conversation about the time, Denise got up without saying anything and walked towards the restrooms. Sadly, she never returned. At some point, Denise Nasland was approached by Ted Bundy, who had returned to the park to look for a second victim. Eight weeks later, her skeletal remains were discovered alongside Ott's. As the afternoon wore on, more and more people started to leave Lake Sammamish. However, Nasland's group stuck around and waited for her, hoping that she would return. That day, Denise had driven them all to the park in her car. As the park continued to empty, her vehicle started to stand out all by itself. Fearing the worst, her boyfriend, Ken, decided to report her missing to a park ranger. Speaking of park rangers, we need some friendly friends. Friendly friends aren't really friendly. On this episode of Friendly Friends, they're hanging out with a park ranger, I guess. I don't know. Hey, what are your kids doing over there? Oh, we're just playing with this machete. You want to see? Yeah, you want to see? Oh, no. Friendly friends are always killing. Then the police arrive at the park. Over the next couple of days, it started to occur to everyone that two women had gone missing from Lake Sammamish on the exact same day. Something's going on. At the time, everyone was aware that an unidentified predator was targeting women in the Pacific Northwest. As a review, Linda Healy, Donna Manson, Susan Rancourt, Kathy Parks, Brenda Ball, and George Ann Hawkins had all vanished over the five-month period. As a result, it was becoming increasingly clear that the women of Seattle were no longer safe. Despite this, the abductions at Lake Sammamish came as a huge shock to everyone. In this case, an unidentified man calling himself, quote-unquote, Ted, had seemingly abducted two women from the same place in broad daylight. Furthermore, Ott and Naslin had gone missing within three and a half hours of each other. That afternoon, most people at Lake Sammamish had temporarily set their fears aside. It was an unusually hot summer day, and there were a lot of fun events happening at the park. Roughly 40,000 people attended the park that Sunday, eager to soak up the sunshine. For one day, they wanted to forget about the frightening events that were unfolding in Seattle and just enjoy themselves. Plus, Seattle only gets precisely one day of sunshine every summer. Just kidding, it's six. Sadly... Bundy was in no mood to relax. While everyone was laughing, drinking beer, and hanging out with their friends, he was walking among them, feverishly searching for his next victim. Making the planet dumber. Just a few months later, in the fall of 1974, Ted Bundy moved to Utah. And it was at this time that Ted and Elizabeth's relationship began to fizzle. They saw each other less and less, started dating other people, but always stayed in touch. Later on, Ted even admitted to trying to kill Elizabeth during this time. Shit. He confessed that he tried to stay away from her when he felt the power of his sickness building in him, as he said. But he couldn't resist his impulse. One night, while visiting her 
on a trip back to Washington, he had closed the fireplace damper so the smoke couldn't go up the chimney and put a towel in the door crack so the smoke would stay in the apartment. Elizabeth later clearly remembers that night, although she had no idea it was Ted's actions at the time. To quote Elizabeth, My eyes were running and I was coughing. I jumped out of bed and threw open the nearest window and stuck my head out. After I had recovered some, I opened up all the windows and doors and broke up the fire the best that I could. I had actually gotten on Ted the next day for not coming back with a fan, end quote. Hmm. Now let's learn about this piece of shit's activities once he settled in Utah. I can't believe this guy. On September 2nd, 1974, Ted Bundy left Seattle and moved to Salt Lake City in order to attend the University of Utah School of Law. Despite being far away from his comfort zone, it didn't take long for Bundy to revert to his old behaviors. Well, of course not. Within a month of moving to his new apartment, he was already beginning to troll around for his next victim. Okay, here is where I'm going to stop. I think this has been enough darkness for one day. <laughs> we definitely had to flex the friendly friends. See you next week. Hey, you can't oh, say. Hey, what's that? Oh, it's my remote control to a weapons-grade drone. What's that button to? Uh, weapons activated. Uh-oh. You can uh, But next week, I'm going to pick up where I left off, and we're going to actually discuss his victims from the following years, as well as the victims in Utah. Now, we're still in 1974. Right, there's still more to go, huh? We're only in September. This started in January. So this is getting pretty fucking crazy. There's a lot to this. And we're also going to discuss the aftermath of his many arrests, which I found fascinating. The story gets really interesting with apprehensions and escapes and the trial and his eventual execution, along with his confessions. I need to cover some of his confessions as well. What are our dipshit's conclusions about this dipshit today? Ah. All right, so Ted Bundicles, what a fuck. Right? I don't even know where to begin with this guy. And we haven't even heard all of the Mm -mm. stories yet. No, no, it gets, it continues to be uh, dark and fascinating though. It really does. Uh, And especially as we get towards the end with his confessions Mm -hmm. and uh, just, and The guy, we haven't even gotten to some of the super interesting shit where he gets uh, arrested and then fucking escapes prison. Really? I mean, it just is insane. What a story. I know. It's it's very interesting. Well, there's not much to talk about here for our conclusion Mm -mm. since we're right in the midst of it. Right. But I will say that I did not know he was as brutal Mm. and fucking Mm -hmm. depraved as he was. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's a fucking five right now without me even looking at it as Mm -hmm. depraved. And I had no idea. I had oh, no idea. Well, you know, and then we're and just starting. <laughs> more detail will come out as we move forward. Wow. Um, because as you as for those that just finished listening, as you can tell, his victims, there was very little actual evidence of what happened to them aside from being bashed in the head. Right. Because they were skeletal remains. So most of what we know came from Him. Ted Bundy's confessions. Yeah. And so, and like so many other serial killers, they lie for whatever reason in that moment. That's it, just it. Mm-hmm. Yes. So there's some crazy shit that he said the killer did, and we'll cover those uh, in a later episode. Hmm. Well, yeah. I think that's enough for this week's dipshit yeah. files. Just yeah. what a deep dive you're doing. Yeah. Well, this they, is... they asked and they shall receive. <laughs> so we'll be back next week, yes. next Wednesday, for another dipshit files mm-hmm. to maybe not even conclude Ted Bundicles. Right. Ted, maybe not even conclude Ted Bundicles. Ted Bundicles. But uh, I don't want to see uh, Ted the cunt. Uh huh. Ted Bundhole. But. 
I don't know. We'll come up with some other names for him, but Bundacles. Yeah. I mean, he was so smooth about what he did. We can't even call him Ted Bungles. Mm, We just, you know, what a monster. And there's more to come. Yeah. All right. So we'll talk at you in the future. And it'll seem like the present. Bye. Bye. Shit files. Bing, Bing bong. bong. <laughs> <laughs>